Let's uh, turn to God's Word this morning, even as Todd reminded us of its, of its value and its importance. We'll be in Isaiah 14 this morning. Uh, now, this may come as a relief to some of you. Uh, we are moving a little faster through Isaiah. Now, what happened to Isaiah 13, you might ask? Nothing. It's still in God's Word. We still believe that all of God's Word is inspired and errant and useful for teaching, correcting, and training in all righteousness. We believe that. But in order to sort of move through Isaiah in a way that helps us grasp the fullness of it, uh, we're going to move a little quickly through some of the next sections of Isaiah. And so we'll take up Isaiah 14 today, well noting the things that are happening around it. Isaiah 14 comes in a cycle, a a series of uh, declarations of judgment against various nations. So there's Babylon, there's uh, various places like Egypt, Philistine, uh, Moab. All of these are listed as places that God uh, deals with in his justice, in his mercy. And so we'll take this passage as sort of representative of those, those things. This was a passage that would have provided great, a great deal of hope for the original recipients. And I think for us, too, it gives us a wonderful picture of restoration. Even as God brings calamity on those that are in sin, he also comes with his compassion. And we'll see that reflected beautifully in God's word this morning. So would you stand this morning as we read Isaiah 14, verses 1 through 10. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil, And the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones. All who were kings of the nations, all of them will answer and say to you, You too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, would you point us to what is true in this text? Lord, would we see your words uh, as beautiful and glorious? Would they change us? Would they shape us? Would they give us hope? Would they correct us where we need correction? Would they showcase your compassion where we need your care? Lord, would you do these things and would you bless the word, words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning, we ask through the power of the Spirit and in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. You know the words, the power of the words you promised. If you have a child, you know that they remember everything that you have ever promised them. If you say that we are going to have ice cream today, that becomes an indelible promise that will not be broken. But even beyond that sort of type of promise, you know what it's like to have somebody promise something to you, 
and that promise not always being followed through on. Maybe they promised to stay. Maybe they promised to visit, to call, to come, to show up, and they didn't. We know the pain that that causes when somebody's promised something and then it doesn't actually happen. The, the follow-through isn't, isn't there. We can joke about things like, you know, promises of ice cream, but we know the pain that promises broken causes, don't we? Now, what about when it's God? What about when God makes promises to you in his word and then you look at your life and it doesn't really seem to match up? Would you see in God's word the truth, the beauty, the fullness of all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ? You see all of that in Scripture, and then you look at your life and you say, but it doesn't quite seem that way. Maybe there's a disconnect between what is and what is promised. Maybe the biblical truth that we see in passages sometimes looks improbable to you. You say, I understand what it's saying, but it doesn't seem actual in my life. Maybe you had a vision of how your life was supposed to go, and that's kind of unraveled. And as it's unraveled, you're left sort of cobbling together what's left, trying to rearrange the days and dreams that you have left. Or maybe your life has actually looked largely like you thought it would. Things have gone according to plan, mostly in your life, and yet you still sense a tension between passages like this that talk about no pain and turmoil and rest being given to us, all the pain removed, and you have questions. Questions about the gap between what is promised and what you live every day. The good news for us is that this passage steps into that gap and begins to show us how God shrinks that gap, how God meets us in the places that we are and shows us the truth and beauty of his, of his word and his very character. So how do we do this? How do we deal with this disconnect? Well, it begins in verse 1, where we see this picture of the fact that we, God's people, are chosen again in compassion. It says this, For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob, talking about his people, he will have compassion on them. Now, often as we hear the word compassion in Scripture, it's, it's referring to sort of God's covenantal promises and how they are worked out. But here, this word compassion really is just about his, his character. It's about his warmth, his care, his concern for his people. And you might note that it begins with four. And so we need to look just previously in the text and see what the context is here. These verses are kind of fun. You get a, a list of animals that you didn't realize were in Scripture. It says this, but wild animals will lie down there. This is a picture of Babylon having been sort of decimated by God. Wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell, and their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in its pleasant palaces. That is a picture of God bringing judgment. Now, think about wild goats dancing. Now, if you go to South Carolina, there is this trend, at least when we were out there, of restaurants advertising that they had goats on the roof. Quite literally, you drive down the interstate, and they'd have a little restaurant, and they'd have a nice little fence on the top, and they'd have a goat there. And it was a draw. You came, and you watched the goats as you ate your meal. It was, it was odd. It's not what this passage is in any way referring to. What it's referring to is that wild goats should not be dancing where people were living. Wild goats should not be there. And why shouldn't they be there? Well, because it's a picture that things are disordered. And how does this disorder come? Well, God has come and brought judgment on Babylon. God has come and put things to right. And why has he done that? Why has all of this transpired towards Babylon? Well, it comes in verse 1 of 14. 4. The Lord will have compassion 
on Jacob. And we'll choose again Israel. That choosing again is not that somehow God reneged on his promises and is finally getting back to what he said he would do. No, it's a picture of God again acting as he always does for his people. We know from the rest of Scripture that God's choice is not something that ebbs and flows. He chose us in him, as Ephesians reminds us, before the foundation of the world. Romans 11 reminds us that God's gift and his call are irrevocable. They cannot be changed. That's what we're reminded of again here. They are chosen not because there is something special about his people, but because he has selected them, he will again demonstrate his compassion to his people, even if they don't see it. The moment here that Isaiah is writing about has yet to happen. This is a prophecy. It's looking forward to a day when Babylon will be destroyed. It's a little unexpected maybe for the audience because their immediate threat is probably the Assyrians. They're not really concerned about sort of the Babylonians. They're still sort of on the rise. They're not a big concern. It's the Assyrians. And yet, what does God do here? He looks so far forward, so far forward, that he lists a nation that is yet to be a real threat to his people and says, even these people, who in time will bring you into exile, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bring my compassion and my choice again to bear on your life, so much so that I will set you in your own land. That language is very particular of sort of picking up and putting in its place, setting where they belong. The land, which was a proof positive that they were his people, that they had an inheritance from God, he will put them there. And get this, so much so that sojourners will join them. People who don't really belong will come and say they will attach themselves to the house of Jacob, knowing that their God is the God that they want to follow. The sojourners will join them and say, this is what is right and true. They will join them. It's a beautiful picture of everything coming together. But how does this help us sort of uh, lessen that gap between God's promises and our reality? You'll notice so far in the text, we haven't been told to do anything, have we? It's simply relayed what God is doing. And that's where we begin to, even in our lives, reduce that gap between what God is saying and, and sometimes what we perceive as the reality that we have to walk through. It's a reality that we can't do anything to sort of manufacture God doing things the way that we would have him do. But it's his compassion and it's his choice that draws us, that brings us, that shows us who he actually is and draws us to himself. We can't do it. It precludes any pride or any sort of opinion of ourselves that would say, look at me and how I've achieved whatever position I have. No, it's God and his sovereignty and his compassion that does all of this. You might be thinking as we walk through Isaiah, you say, I've I've heard this before. It's sort of a a narrative that I'm familiar with. God reminds his people of who he is and, and goes through that. And you say, we've got it. Can we move on to something else? But Isaiah doesn't. Isaiah keeps doing this. Think of Isaiah's life and ministry. He prophesied not just in a moment, but over his entire life. He spoke to God's people about their, their sin and their need for God's grace and all of those things. And, and think about every moment, each moment in Isaiah's life needed the word of God. Isaiah's message doesn't really change dramatically through the book of Isaiah. It's the same message That God is a God of compassion, God is a God who punishes sin, and he's a God that you need to return to, and it's a God who draws you to himself. That's what we need to. We don't need to sort of move on beyond that. We saw this last week in Isaiah 12, where we are called to draw water from the wells of salvation. 
Isaiah does it again in Isaiah 14. Points us to the well of salvation and says here, God and his compassion, God and his choice of you, that is what you need. That is what is true, right, and good. It's a reminder that God will choose his church again, as he always does. He will choose Israel. He will be faithful to his promises. Now, that might sometimes look like losing in our world. Culture may shift. Our lives may not look the way we want them to do. And we say, no, we're losing. No, the picture here is of a God who is compassionate and caring. He doesn't forget his people. He doesn't move on to other things. No, he will stay with his people and so that's how we begin to, to reduce that gap between his promises and our reality by seeing who God is and turning to his compassion. When he was compassionate towards us. So much so that we see in verse 2 and 3 that he rests, calls us to rest in a reversal. What happens here? God calls them, verse 2, and the peoples will take them and bring them to their place. Now what's happening there? It's a wonderful picture of, of the nations, not Israel itself, but other nations taking God's people and bringing them back to their land and saying, this is where you belong. We together are going to worship God here. And we're tracking so far in the text, and then we get to this next verse, and maybe we get a little uncomfortable. It says this, and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. Now, how is this a picture of God's fulfillment and his promises? What is going on here? And this isn't just sort of a modern people reading this and saying, what's, what's going on? Throughout church history, people have struggled to understand maybe the fullness of why God is talking this way. Why is he bringing up slavery and sort of a picture here? Is, has Israel just sort of gone off the rails here? Are they finally enacting revenge? They're finally in power, so they're going to enslave everybody else? Some have tried to just read this very spiritually saying it's just about sin and sort of standing over the oppression of evil. Others have said maybe it's just a late note of somebody sneaking in some sort of nationalism into the text. I think there's a better way to read it and one that reflects the whole flow of the book of Isaiah. Back in Isaiah 2, what did we see? We saw the nations flooding into the mountain of the Lord. This picture of everything coming together, what happens is in Isaiah 2 verse 3, the, the nations come towards God's holy mountain. They delight to be part of what is happening here. Note that these, these nations, as they come and worship God, they attach themselves to the house of Jacob, do so willingly. It's them that come and take together God's people and place them in his holy place. Later in Isaiah, in Isaiah 56, in verse 6, it says this, And the foreigners will join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. That's what's being alluded to in this passage in Isaiah 14, a picture of reversal of, yes, evil being put down and pressed underneath the glory of God and his people, but even those who see who God is now coming and delighting to serve the God who is the true God. That's what's being pictured for us. It's a wonderful picture of seeing all that is coming to fruition, all that is coming together, a place where people come and delight to serve God. The new kingdom is a kingdom of, of service. It's not wrong to sort of look through the lens of this passage to Jesus and see the fullness of what is to come. What did Jesus do with his disciples? Last Supper. He washed their feet. He served. And in a sense, we see here a picture of people coming into the new reality of the kingdom and delighting to serve others. 
Even as Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, we see some of that reflected here in this delight to come and serve. And we can come and serve in the new kingdom of God. Why? Because there is rest there. Look at verse 3. It says, When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve. This is a promise of rest. Now, they had hard service. God's people had hard service in exile. That was a reality. But here, we see that removed. Real tangible rest. All of it taken away. The pain, the turmoil, hard service. All of those things that would have made them say, God, what are you doing? What are you up to? Why are you doing this? That is removed from them. Now, when does this happen? It says, when the Lord has given you rest, but when is that, that rest? And this is where we, we, we wrestle with sort of living between the already and the not yet of Scripture, that gap between the promises. Because there is this rest that is offered here. There is this picture of all of the nations coming together, and, and we know that this doesn't fully happen when God's people leave Babylon and come back. We don't see a mass conversion we don't see a perfect picture of all rest and turmoil being removed. We don't see this sort of reversal of roles of sort of the slaves and all of that picture. This doesn't happen fully. But what God is doing here for his people is giving them the big picture, if you will, of how he works and how he brings redemption. And he's showing them that when I take you back from Babylon and put you back in your nation, it's sort of a down payment. It's a proof positive that I am the one who will do what I said I will do. I'll be faithful. You can trust that you know the end is secure because I am the one who, even in this moment, will bring you back. I'll give you rest. All of this ultimately is fulfilled not in a moment of just historical events, but it's fulfilled in Christ. The rest here isn't one because there are some Gentiles to carry the load. The rest is one because Jesus shoulders the burden of sin and death and is victorious over it. And because we know that end game is what will happen, we can look and enjoy even rest now as these people do. Think of it this way. I don't know if we have any uh, San Antonio Spurs fans uh, in the room, but it's been a tough decade, right? Losing game, losing game. You check the standings and you're like, ugh. But then what happened? Well, we, we did it. We were the worst team in the league, and uh, that's the goal. And what happened? We got the number one draft pick. Now, if you haven't followed this, this is not just any number one draft pick. This is the next incarnation of Lebr LeBron James. Will Chamberlain, you name it, Michael Jordan, the comparisons have been made. 19-year-old French basketball player, Vincent and... Uh, I had a debate with some people about how to say his name after the last service. So we're going to go with Wemby. That's his short, shortened name. This individual is seven foot four, and he doesn't just play as a center. He can shoot threes. He can handle the ball. He literally, as people have said, will be in three years the best offensive and defensive player in the NBA, right here in San Antonio. The drought is over. <laughs> he has said that he wants to win championships now. I leave all of that for our anticipation and hopes for the coming years. Why do I bring that up? Because in that moment when you get that news that we win, we got the draft pick, there's a security, right? There's a security. We say the next 20 years of being a Spurs fan are not going to be misery. <laughs> in, a, in a bigger than we can imagine way, this text does the same thing. 
It says the end is secure. The championship, so to speak, has been won. Not by some 19-year-old who might break his ankle in two years and crush our hopes, but by Jesus, who is victorious, who will not lose. And and that's really what this, this text is reminding us, is to rest in the reversal that we experience in part, even as we're experiencing in part the reversal of the Spurs' fate, we also, in a sense, experience in part the reversal of sin and death. Jesus' hope isn't all future, it actually penetrates into now. That now, as Matthew 11 reminds us, we can have rest for our souls. That now we can take confidence that we actually have a God who gives us rest, who forgives our sins, who reconciles us to God. And that matters for now. As we confront our pain, our, dis- our frustration, all of those, those things, that we can now come and drink that deep water of the well of Christ. We can rest in his gospel. And I know that rest sometimes can sound maybe esoteric. It's out there. There's a spiritual rest. But, but as we pursue Christ, as we know more of him, we begin to see that he is one who supplies our needs. There are enough stories in this room that can attest to the reality that Christ supplies what we need. That it gives us rest for our souls as we turn to him, as we depend on him. He is sufficient to supply everything that we need. We also know that in the tension between the already and the not yet of this world, sometimes Jesus' ideas are at odds with what we think is true rest. There are times where Jesus gives us a rest that is deeper and more profound than we might have hoped for. Our idea of rest is the beach, the mountains, but Jesus gives us rest for our souls. And even as he gives us rest for our souls, he also knows that we are physical beings, and so he gives us rest from our labors. Once a week, on Sunday, he's calling us to rest, knowing that he is the one who is victorious. He is the one who has secured all of the promises that he has offered. They are secured. And so we don't have to believe the hype. Whenever somebody comes along and says, this is the future, this is the way that things are going to go, this is what we must do, this is how we have hope now, we don't have to believe that hype because we know who Jesus is. We know who God is, the one who is compassion, who chooses again his people and gives us rest and reverses all of the sin and the darkness in this world. So how do we move forward? How do we join this story? How do we begin to, in our lives, reduce that gap between his promises and the reality that we experience? Well, it comes in verse 4. It says this, You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Now, what does that mean? Aren't we not supposed to taunt people? We probably grew up with parents that said, don't taunt somebody. That's rude. It's it's not what you're supposed to do. What about the New Testament? Doesn't it tell us that we're supposed to, you know, love our enemies, seek forgiveness, seek reconciliation, turn the other cheek? How do we reconcile that reality with this reality that we're offered here of taking up a taunt against the king of Babylon? couple things to, to help us understand what's, what's being said here. The word taunt might in your translation be translated as, as parable or proverb. That's sort of the underlying scent, sense of the word that we are to take up. It's this parable, it's this proverb, it's this story of what God has done and will do against the king of Babylon that we are to take up and proclaim with great confidence. The king of Babylon here is not sort of a stand-in for anybody you don't like. It's a stand-in for true wickedness, 
for the very personification of evil. That is who the king of Babylon is. It's not some sort of secondary character. It stands in for evil itself. We see this in Revelation 18. Just before we get to the wonderful last chapters of the book of Revelation, we see that Babylon must fall. And there's this wonderful picture of how Babylon is is undone. And here, you and I are invited in to see that end of the story earlier and take up the taunt and say, we know that evil doesn't win. We know that Jesus wins. And so it is appropriate for us to take up that taunt and say, we know. When there seems to be a gap between our, our reality and the promises of God, we know that God's promises are sure. We know that he is the one who will accomplish all that he has promised to do. And we see that through the words of this taunt, that the oppressors in verse 4 have ceased. All that the evil has been put to an end. The very objects of power, the staff, the scepter, those things that have struck people with unceasing blows leading to unrelenting persecution are just done away with. God breaks them. He puts it to an end. He has struck, the peoples that were struck in wrath with unceasing blows, they have seen the anger of the nations that have ruled them. All of that is done away with. It's this beautiful picture of God undoing all that was wrong. We see this reflected not just in sort of a, a spiritual sense, but the whole earth that was subjected to frustration under the curse is, is removed. The curse is gone, and so what happens? The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. No longer are they groaning under the chains of sin, but now the very earth rejoices. That's the taunt that we take up. That's the message that we take up and live with in our lives, that we know that this is what happens. Even so, Isaiah uses this sort of poetic picture of the cypress trees. The king of Babylon would come and take them down for his palaces, but no, now since he has been laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Even the creation rejoices when evil and sin are done away with. This taunt carries on through the end of the chapter 14, but we'll just note a few more things on it. The, the king of Babylon is said to go down to Sheol, to go down to hell and destruction. And what happens? It's this almost humorous picture of hell opening the curtains to greet him and say, oh, is it you, king of Babylon? We didn't know you were going to make it. It seems you are just a mere man, just like the rest of us, the other kings of the nations who are there and are really recorded in all of these passages around here of oracles against Moab, all of these nations that have stood before God and have fallen down. The king of Babylon joins all of those. And all of them will answer and say to you, king of Babylon, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. It gets darker after that with maggots and worms and all number of other poetic pictures of destruction of this king of Babylon. But we know that this is not just some idle story, that this is what God does and has accomplished. I read recently an account of a a biblical Hebrew scholar, and she grew up in the UK and visited frequently the British Museum with her parents. And she loved to go and look at sort of the old statuary uh, things from, from various gods. So she would go to the ancient Near Eastern section of the library or museum and see Babylonian gods and Assyrian gods and all these Philistine sort of worshiping artifacts, all of this stuff that is noted in the book of Isaiah. 
Um, and this individual who wrote this isn't a, a believer, but what she noted was that there was one God who was missing. And she was young enough to, to have some questions about that. And th- what God was missing? Well, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, wasn't in the museum. There weren't statues of it. And her answer, which makes some logical sense, is that God commanded that you don't make images of, of him. Right? That's, that's part of it, but she missed a more foundational aspect of the fact why Yahweh is not in that museum. Because all those other gods have been relegated to museum status. Everything else that we read about in these next chapters of Isaiah are gods that are in museums. But Yahweh is still on his throne. And so for you and I, as we look at a, a text like this, it's, it's an invitation to rejoice that we know what is true, that God is still on his throne. So how do we take up this this taunt? Well, we can take it up in a few ways. We can take it up towards death itself. What does 1 Corinthians 15 remind us? It says this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's part of our taunt. When we approach death, None of this negates the real pain and the loss that people experience in that moment, but we also do so with hope and confidence, knowing the end of the story. Similarly, Paul invites us in Romans 16 to say this, where he says this to us, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What Paul does there is he ties the very beginning of the story back in Genesis 3 and says, you now, because of the gospel, because of what is true, get to join in that declaration and that taunt against Satan that he doesn't get to win. He hasn't won, and he will not win. And so this is our hope as we work to mind that gap, to to reduce that gap, to know that this is true. And I know that that might still seem fairly distant to some of us. We might say that still sounds so sort of final and abstract, and yet what God does again and again in his word is he takes those eternal hopes that death doesn't win, that sin doesn't win, that Satan doesn't win, and he says that matters for your life now. Matters for your life now. As you deal with frustration, as you deal with anxiety, as you deal with worry, as you try to knit together the rest of your life, whatever that looks like, we need these promises to guide us and guard us. That's why we gather on Sunday, to proclaim and hear again what is true. It's why we come to the Lord's table. It's why we pray. It's why we read our Bibles in those moments of frustration, to know what is true, right, and good. And as we turn to Him, we turn to a God who is compassionate, one who calls us again, one who allows us and calls us to rest in the reversal that we experience in part now and fully will know. And as we do that, we can boldly even take up the taunt Sometimes that taunt being taken up might be more of a a whimper. We might not have a full-throated taunt, but we can cling to what is true, knowing who accomplishes it. Let's turn to Christ in prayer. Father, would you do this? Lord, I know that even as we hear these words, there are many that, that may feel the pain and the turmoil that this passage describes acutely. By the power of your Spirit, Lord, would you show them your compassion and your care and your love? Would you minister to each one of us in our moments of frustration when sin seems large and death seems inevitable? Lord, would you show us that the victory is sure in Christ? Lord, would you, with increasing boldness, allow us to take up this taunt 
to the king of Babylon, to evil itself, knowing that it is not the end of the story. And Lord, would you, by the grace of your spirit, work that reality into our life even this week, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let's take a moment and let's prepare to meet at the table together.